Well, hey, good morning, LifePoint. So glad to have you here to worship the Lord with us this morning. If you are visiting again, we haven't met. My name is Pastor John, so glad to have you here with us. Uh, If you would, at some point before you leave today, text the word welcome to the number on the screen, 406-219-0314. It's also on the seat back in front of you there. Uh, But we would love to uh, get to know you a little bit and uh, connect with you. If you didn't get a gift, we will get you one at the end of the service. Or if you're watching online, uh, we would love to give you one as well. Just leave your name and your address, and we would love to send that to you in the mail as well this morning. Well, uh, turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter number two uh, with me this morning. And by a show of hands today, how many of you have done something in the past that you have regretted? Raise your hand, keep them up. Everybody look around the room, right? Done something in the past that I regretted, right? Everybody, right? Everybody can relate to that. Uh, there's not a single person, uh, I don't think in the world, right, that uh, has never done something that said, man, I kind of regret saying that, I regret doing that. Uh, That's just kind of common, right? We've all been there before. Uh, But there's kind of a few things that can happen with that, right? Like if you've lived for any amount of time and you've made a lot of mistakes, there's kind of a tendency, I think, to go through life and actually hold on to those things, right? Like you have the option through regrets and through things that you've done that you would say, man, I I wish I didn't do that. I wish that didn't happen in my life. We have a tendency to kind of hold on to those things, don't we? Let them define our lives and define who we are. We often find our identity in our past sins and our past decisions. That's always an option. Here's another option. Sometimes people uh, help us keep that, right, in in the forefront of our minds, right? Often people don't want to let go of our past mistakes. And so uh, it often happens where people want to just, you know, keep you uh, thinking about your past and your mistakes. That's certainly an option as well. Or we can learn to move past them. We can learn to move past the regret, the shame, the sins, the decisions that we've made in life, right? We can all relate to that, I think, this morning. Well, today we're, we're going to talk about a woman in Joshua, chapter number two, who, who knew regret. Like, she understood what regret was. She understood what it was like to make some uh, decisions that she certainly was not proud of, but she encountered the real, true God in her life was dramatically, dramatically changed. She went from a Gentile prostitute uh, to become not only a hero of faith in the Bible, but actually part of the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And her story is really, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of salvation. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story of this woman who is saved from destruction and given a hope and given a future and given something so blessed through her relationship with God. And I want you to know her story. Her story can be your story. Uh, Her story of salvation, her story of redemption can be your story that no matter how much you have failed or I have failed in life, no matter how many bad decisions we have uh, made in our lives, uh, you can find restoration, you can find redemption through the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about this woman who found that too, and her name is Rahab. Rahab, that might be uh, familiar to some of you this morning, but if you are new to LifePoint, we started a sermon series last week in the book of Joshua. Uh, and we're looking at really the conquest. We're looking at this nation who is leaving the wilderness, has left Egypt, 40 years spent in the wilderness. Uh, and now they're on the brink of the Jordan. And if you were with us last Sunday, we talked about that Jordan crossing, right? Like everyone has a Jordan in their life that kind of separates them from God's God's best, right? And that's where Israel was at this point. Like, they are at the Jordan River. The promised land is across the river. I mean, all they got to do 
is cross this thing and enter into the land. And the same is true with you and I, right? We get to cross our Jordans, right, if we want God's best uh, in our lives. But, but as we read this story, I, I think we, we come to some very difficult things in Scripture, uh, if you're a Christian and you read uh, Joshua, you, you kind of are encountered with some, some very challenging things because the nation of Israel is literally going to walk into some of these cities and slaughter every human being. And we read things like that and we think, how in the world could be, this be the God of the Bible? Right? Like it, it seems unfair. It seems unjust. It doesn't seem like the God of the New Testament. How do we reconcile the God of the New Testament with the God of the Old Testament? And so all of these questions kind of come into our minds like, is this legit? Is this real? Is this happening? And is this right? Let me just take a few minutes to kind of describe to you what Canaan was like. When we, when we talk about Canaan, this, this land of Canaan, which was the promised land, we're talking more uh, about a land in, that encompassed many, many different groups of people. Uh, the Hittites and the Amorites and all these ites groups of people lived in Canaan. And so Canaan really uh, encompasses all these different people groups. And, and Canaan uh, became a, a place much like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've read scripture before, you, you know that God actually destroyed uh, Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual immorality, the incest, all this garbage that's happening in the city. God said, hey, I, I've had enough. And he, and he destroyed those, those two cities. And, and Canaan had become so much like those cities, maybe even much like the times of Noah, where every, every man kind of did that which was right in his own eyes. These were, these were uh, people who had just kind of went full uh, headlong into sin. And they had a lot of idols that they worshipped. They had a lot of different gods that they worshipped, uh, several different idols. In fact, one of those gods, uh, his name was Moloch. Moloch. And, and their worship of Moloch had, had really become pretty R-rated, more, more so than we're going to kind of describe here uh, this morning. But uh, uh, it was full of sexual immorality, male prostitutes, female prostitutes. And also this, this is what kind of Moloch was known for, was child sacrifice, Right? So you can kind of imagine this, this group of people living in Canaan, and, and they're, they're literally sacrificing their own children uh, to this perceived God, thinking that they're you know, doing what's right. But this is who they were, murder, incest. I mean, pretty much anything goes in Canaan. And I want you to know that historically, as you look at the record uh, of, of Scripture and of what's happening in this area of the world, historically, God gave the land of Canaan some 420 years to repent, 420 years to change their ways and to serve the one true God. You see, God wasn't obviously pleased, right, with all of these things that were happening, right? And God gave him this time frame. In fact, God actually extended it in his grace, in his mercy. You see, you see God's judgment in Scripture, but you also see God's compassion in the midst of judgment and mercy in the midst of judgment. God actually gave an extra 40 years. Where did those 40 years come from? Israel wandering in the wilderness. They got an extra 40 years. And so 460 years, God gave, God gave Canaan a lot of time to repent, and he was gracious, and he was compassionate, but they refused to repent. They refused to repent and to turn from their wickedness, and so God's judgment was soon to come, because God is a just God. Let me give you kind of a frame of reference for kind of the whole conquest and what's happening here, and this is from Scripture and what God describes as the reason for Israel going in. It wasn't just about them getting a land. It was also about God uh, judging these nations. So just notice with me before we get to Joshua 2, Deuteronomy 
chapter 9, and it'll be on the screen for you to see as well. But Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and we're kind of going to get that answer, why is this happening? Why would God do this? Hear, O Israel, verse number 1, you are to cross over the Jordan today, right? To go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Uh, verse 2, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, uh, who are actually giants in, in the land, uh, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons uh, of Anak? You're going to go in, you're going to dispossess that land, it's going to be yours. But notice what God says, know therefore, verse 3, today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God, right? Like this is, God is going before you, and God is the one who is actually going to destroy and subdue and judge these nations. And he says, so you shall drive them out, verse three, and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now notice verse number four, and we kind of get our answer here. He says this, do not say in your heart, after the Lord God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness, And that's such a good reminder, is it not, that we go through life and we realize it's not my righteousness, it's God's righteousness, right? The only righteousness you and I have is because of Jesus, right? And so God is like, hey, Israel, don't think it's because you're so awesome and so amazing and and you're so holy. It's not. But it's that the Lord has brought, uh, brought me into the land to possess it, whereas it is because of this, notice it, the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And so God is going to use the nation of Israel to judge the nations of Canaan. Uh, Much like God would use uh, Babylon, if you look uh, at their history a little fast forward, they actually go into slavery uh, for 70 long years, and God would use the Babylonians to actually judge the nation of Israel. Well, God is going to use the nation of Israel, to judge all of these nations as well. And so is this some like land grab, right? Is this some unfair, unjust war uh, by God? No, this is God judging the sins of the nations. And this is also God restraining evil. Did you know that God restrains evil in the world? Uh, We look around and we say, well, there's a lot of evil. Why isn't God restraining? Because you have God's righteous judgment and you have God's mercy and they go hand in hand. Uh, God is a a, a very long-suffering kind of God. But here's a principle that I just want you to think about as we kind of get started into this, and that is this, is that God will only put up with evil for so long. Do you agree with that statement, right? God will only put up with evil for so long historically. Read the book of Revelation. We know that God is eventually going to judge the world and its sin, right? Uh, But God will only put up with evil in your life, in my life, for so long as well, right? Like, God will judge our sin at some point, but this is so important for us to kind of understand, like, why is this happening? Why are they going into the land? Why are they even called to slaughter some of these these nations and these people groups? This is God restraining evil, okay? One more thing that I, I think is really important that we need to understand, and that is that God actually gave Israel the rules of engagement, the rules of war. Did you know that we have like rules of engagement, rules of war in our society, in our, in our free world, right? Like there is uh, that sort of thing today, and there was then. And, and God was very clear about rules of engagement. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 20 in verses 10 through 11. And again, it's on the screen. Uh, it says this in Deuteronomy verse 10, uh, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, And Israel certainly knew, they could relate to that, like they're going to do a lot of that, right? They're going to come to a city and they're going to fight against it. Before you do that, notice what it says, offer terms of peace to it. 
offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be forced labor for you and shall serve you. And so uh, this, this was a command. This is what God had actually said. When you come to a city to fight, uh, you know, somebody get on the loud horn and be like, hey, we're going to offer you terms of peace. Here's another instance of God's grace, compassion, mercy, extending once again to a people who had rejected him over and over and over, right? Now, you remember, if you're here with us last Sunday in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7, uh, again on the screen, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous for what? Why, why should you be strong and courageous? I want you to be strong and courageous. You're careful to do everything that the law commands you to do. I don't want you to turn from the right, the right, my right, <laughs> or to the left, right? I want you to obey all my commands, right? And so we know Joshua was a man of God. We know that Joshua uh, kept the word of God. And certainly Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 10 was something Joshua was required to do, offer terms of peace. What's the point, right? Why do we need to know this? It helps us understand what God is doing in the midst of this conquest. That again, he's offering in the midst of coming judgment, He's offering repentance and forgiveness and mercy in it all. And so Joshua and the nation of Israel would certainly do that uh, to every city that they would, they would come to. And of course, we know many of them rejected it, right? So now you're a little better off uh, for your information in Joshua. But here's what we're going to discover this morning. Uh, if you're new to LifePoint, we have one main thought, one main idea we want you to key in on. And that is simply this, is that your past doesn't have to determine your future. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. Remember we said at the very beginning, hey, any regrets, anything you've done in life that you wish that you didn't do, right? We all have that, and we all have the tendency to allow, allow our past mistakes, our past choices, our past sins to dictate what our future looks like. And we often go through life and we hold on to those sins. We think, God can't use me. God can't redeem me. God can't save me. God can't do anything great in my life because my past is it's too dark. It's too wicked. It's too sinful. And many people and many even Christians walk through life allowing their past to determine the future that God desires for them to actually live and be. We often live today in light of our past failures. That's true, isn't it? Right? We let our past often define us. You see, Rahab, uh, Rahab was a person who could relate to that. Uh, if there was anyone in Scripture, and there's a lot of people, because there's a lot of sinners, of course, in Scripture, but if there was anyone who could relate to, you know, kind of having a past, it was Rahab, because Rahab was a harlot. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. She was a woman who sold herself in order to make a living, right, for her family. Now, we don't know her circumstances, do we? We get really self-righteous when it comes to sin, and, you know, I don't do that kind of sin, and that's not me, and, and we look at people who do, and we kind of judge them a little bit differently, but we don't know Rahab's story, right? Like, we don't know what brought her there. We don't know if she was forced there. We don't know any of the circumstances of her upbringing, but she's there nonetheless, right? She's a prostitute, and that is a hard reputation to overcome in life. But before we get all puckered up and self-righteous, let me remind you and I of what we once were, right? We were once sinners. Right? Like we were once far from God. Read Ephesians and you'll find out about that, right? We were once in darkness. We were once slaves to sin. Whatever sin that was or maybe still is in your life, it might be sex, it might be money, it might be uh, some image you're trying to uphold, it might be manipulating other people, it might be lying, stealing, cheating, whatever the case might be in life. Uh, there's something that we could say, I once was this. I once was this. I want you to just think about that phrase for a minute. 
And just say that in your mind. I once was, fill in your blank in your mind. I once was, but by the grace of God, he saved me despite what I once was. Boy, we need to remind ourselves of that constantly through life, don't we? As we interact with a world that is, that is evil, right? Uh, that, that is sinful. That we, we see it like, you know, on, on TV all the time. We see it in our face all the time. We live in an evil world, but we need to remind ourselves we were evil once as well, but Jesus saved us by his grace. And there's no condemnation. There's no more guilt. When God looks at you, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. Man, you didn't deserve that. And neither did I, and neither did Rahab. She believed in it. She believed in it. And because of that life-altering reality, our past, her past, didn't have to determine her future and what she would become. You see, no one is too far gone for God, right? Uh, And there's not a person in this world we can say like, oh, they're too far gone. Uh, They've lived too too much of a life of sin and darkness in their life, and and they're too far gone for God. No one is beyond God's grace, not you, not me, not Rahab or the Rahabs of the world. And Rahab is going to be confronted with that truth, with that reality of grace. And she didn't let let her past determine her future. And she's got a great future. She's got a great future, and we're going to talk about that here this morning. But let's read our text, and, and, and we're going to break this up into kind of three, like, uh, three sections. They kind of feel, it feels like a play in a way, like, you know, three, uh, like, dramatic kind of, like, uh, situations. Uh, we're going to talk about the lie, the promise, and the scarlet cord. It sounds like a book, doesn't it? The lie, the promise, and the scarlet cord, right? But that, this, is, this is Rahab's story, and it involves all of these three uh, kind of scenes, and so we're going to break it down uh, into those sections and talk about what's happening there. But remember, your past doesn't have to determine your future, right? You with me so far? Okay, let's read Joshua chapter 2 in verses 1 through 2, and then we'll just uh, talk about what's happening here. In verse 1, it says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. In verse 2, And it was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Let me just kind of explain what's happening here. The nation of Israel... Like thousands and thousands of people are on the other side of the Jordan. And and the Jordan from Jericho is about like five to seven miles away. And there's like a sea of people over there. And I can guarantee you the king of Jericho knows what's happening across the Jordan River, right? Like he knows that they are there. And so Joshua, he's he's, he's a good military leader. Uh, He's got a good example from Moses and he was a spy once. And so he's like, hey, you know, I'm going to trust God for this promise, but I'm also going to do my part, right? And I'm going to send some spies over into the land. But they're not going to see if we can take the land, they're going to see how we're going to take the land. And so Joshua sends these spies over and he wants them to kind of, you know, spy out the land and to spy out specifically Jericho. And so these two guys, they're young guys. The Bible describes them as young. They're a new generation that came out of the wilderness and they come into Jericho and they get caught right away. Now I'm no spy expert, but if I look at these guys, I'm thinking, guys, really? Can you not do better you know, than, than, than that? You, you know, right away, you come to the city, and, and the city knows. Like, you know, Jericho knows, the king knows uh, that you are already here. And so they're not very good spies. But I don't think that's the point. Like, God has another reason for them being in Jericho. 
God has another reason, right? Because he's sovereign overall. He has another reason for them coming to Rahab's house. You see, the story about the spies is really a story about Rahab. That God in his mercy, and I hope you see this, I hope you feel this throughout, that God is coming to rescue Rahab. He wants to show mercy to her. Well, that brings us to the opening scene, and that is this, and it's the lie. The lie. Let's talk about the lie. In verse number three, we read this, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, because he knows, right? Maybe he's got his own spies, you know, at the gates, kind of watching the road and that sort of thing, and sees a couple guys coming, and they're like, hey, they ain't from around here, right? You see some people coming to Montana, and you kind of like, they're they're probably not from around here, right? You can kind of tell, you know, that sort of thing, And, and, and they know, like, these guys aren't from here, and they go into Rahab's house, and they know immediately what's going on here, and so they go to Rahab, and they say, hey, Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house. Like, we know, we saw. Don't, you know, hide it from us, for they have come to search out the land. We know why they're here. But the woman, verse number four, had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said this, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. That's lie number one. There's going to be several along the way. I didn't know where they were from. That's lie number one. In verse number five, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. That's lie number two, right? You know, Rahab's on, on a roll here. Uh, I don't know where the men went. That's lie number three. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. That's also a lie, right? Because they won't, right? But she had brought them up to the roof, verse six, and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And that was kind of customary in those days. Uh, during that time, they would take that flax and they would bring it up and they would dry it out and they would use it uh, for various purposes. And so these men are hiding there. And it says in verse seven, so the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Man, there's a ton of drama here. There's a ton of drama here that I think we often miss, but it's really, really fascinating. You get this feeling that the clock is kind of ticking, right? Like Rahab feels, she knows the drama going in Jericho. We've heard uh, about Israel. We've heard what you've done in Egypt. She knows the debauchery in her city. Man, she's living the debauchery in her city. She knows the corruption from the king. She knows the corruption from all uh, all his little cohorts and all this kind of stuff. And as soon as these guys come into the house, she's like, the clock's ticking. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And she lies, right? She not only lies to the king's messengers, but she lies to her city. Like, let that sink in, right? She lies to her neighbors. She lies and betrays really everyone around her. She lies, right? Let me ask you something. Did God need Rahab to lie in order to save the spies? What do you think? No, right? Like, God didn't need Rahab to lie, and he doesn't need you or I to lie to kind of accomplish his purposes, right? Absolutely not. Was it right? Was it wrong for Rahab to lie? Well, according to Scripture, there's never a time where lying is okay. It's the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not lie. The ends never justify the means. But here's the thing. We get hung up on the lie, don't we? We get hung up on the sin, and we really want, like, judgment, right? If we were in God's shoes, man, the word probably wouldn't even exist, right? Because we would just be like, you know? We concentrate and we focus and we emphasize Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the liar, right? When God encountered your life and God came to you, you knew you were a sinner, and you knew, you knew and you understood that your sin separates you. Like, there's no question. Like, I know that I am a sinner, right? And Rahab knew that she was a sinner. And I want you to know the Bible never condones Rahab's sin, but it emphasizes Rahab's belief. Did you hear me? 
It never condones her sin, but it emphasizes her faith in God. You see, God doesn't say this. He doesn't say, hey, hey Rahab, um, could you stop sleeping around? Um, Rahab, could you stop lying and cheating? Could you, could you stop all of this, like, sin? Because it's really not working for my image here. Like, I'm, you know, a holy, just God, and you can't really come, you know, and with all this garbage. Could you just clean up your life, Rahab? And then we'll talk. God doesn't do that, does he? God comes to us in our brokenness. God comes to us in our sin. And he knows that our sin separates us from him. We can't do anything about it. And God says, I know. But if you just have faith, if you have faith to believe, the, the future, the future can be totally, totally different. How is it possible for a lying prostitute to be a hero in the Bible? How is that possible? It's possible when you trust in Jesus, amen? It's possible when you place your faith and trust in the person of Christ who died for you and paid the price of sin for you. It's possible because of Jesus. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. And so Rahab's in this moment, right? And she took a risk. She took a risk and she knew the truth. She knew, listen, what happened in Egypt. We're going to see that here in just a little bit. I mean, she had knowledge of what happened in Egypt, God rescuing this, uh, this nation, this group of people, all these miracles, all these amazing things that happened. She knew that they came to the Red Sea. God parted it. She knew that the Egyptians followed after and the waters came back and wiped out this whole Egyptian army. She knew, and she believed probably this much, I can either, I can either die at their hands because I know, I know that the land is theirs. Or I can take a chance and I can risk my life in trying to help them. Rahab lied, yes. But more importantly, Rahab is about to believe. She believed in what was promised her. So let's look at the promise. That's a lie. Let's look and change gears to the promise. And it's found in verses 8 through 11 and beyond. Notice in verse number 8, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know, notice this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard, just like I said, we heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, notice this, not just Rahab's heart, but our hearts, all of us, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. There's really, this is really where Rahab's faith becomes real. This is kind of a turning point for Rahab. Not only does she know something, but she's about to confess something. And that's important, right? Because it's not enough to know uh, about God or know about Jesus. You can have knowledge of him, but if you're not willing to confess and believe, you really don't have anything. And that's what's true in Rahab's life. But what did she know? What did she know? She says in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. We know what you did. We, we heard the stories. Man, even in, in, in ancient times, like word travels fast, right? The stories of God, the miracles, they heard these things and they knew and they were fearful. And listen, they couldn't deny it. It was true. We know, we know, right? But now comes her confession. And this is what separates Rahab from the rest of Jericho. 
right? Uh, Rahab's not the only one, right? She's not like just this innkeeper, this prostitute who just happens to have some information and the rest of Jericho's kind of in the dark. No, everybody knows and everyone understands. Remember, they had 460 years of hearing and knowing about the God of heaven, the true God, and they said, no, thank you. They heard the same things that Rahab had, but, but here's the difference. Rahab, Rahab believed when the rest of them didn't. Rahab believed when the rest of them didn't. She believed in the Lord. Notice in verse number 11, she says this. She says, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. You see, we miss so much in scripture that we can't really relate. Here's Rahab, a prostitute. She's a Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew, a non-Jew. And Gentiles often worshiped pagan gods, right? Like we talked about at the very beginning. And there were lots of gods and lots of idols, and you kind of do this for this one and that for that one, and you have all these gods, make sure you kind of cover your basis and you're good and all that kind of stuff. For Rahab to say, the Lord, your God, he is God of the heavens and of the earth. She's saying all these other gods? No, no, no. They're not real. What is this, guys? This is a statement of faith. This is a confession of belief. I believe. This is what changes in Rahab's heart, in Rahab's story. And that belief is confirmed by what? Her actions, right? We talk a lot about faith, right? We, we've said this in, in, in the past. We talk a lot about being a person of faith. Are you a person of faith? Yeah, I'm a person of faith. You know, I, I believe in, in, in religious things and that sort of thing. Well, what does that even mean, right? What does that mean to have faith? It, it, if we're going to have faith, it actually means that I believe something and so therefore I act upon those beliefs. I believe something and therefore I'm going to move as if it were true. That is real saving faith. See, it's not enough to just believe something in your mind intellectually. We actually have to act upon it. And this is what Rahab does. She acts upon her belief. I believe that your God is the God and I want to serve him. I want to do something to show that I actually believe. And because of that confession, she asks for a promise. And here's the promise in verses 12 through 14. It says this in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you. And, and, and there's no question, right? I mean, she, she was kind to these guys. She saved their life. I mean, you know, God, I'm sure, could have stepped in in some other way, shape, or form. But God used Rahab. She stepped in. She risked her life. And she dealt kindly, of course, with these spies. No question. But as I have dealt kindly with you, what does she ask? You also will deal kindly with me. That is what I'm asking, with me and with my father's house, uh, and give me a sure sign that you, verse 13, will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters. Why? Because she knows destruction's coming. She knows that Israel's going to march into the land and slaughter everyone. She knows this is going to happen. And so she asks that they make a promise that you would protect me and everyone who belongs to me and deliver our lives from death. In verse 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Like our life for yours, even to death. We promise you upon our very lives that we will not harm you. If you do not tell this business, verse 14 of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And you kind of read that and it's like, just kind of like, oh yeah, it kind of all makes sense. And we kind of just let it kind of roll over our mind. But Rahab's taking a huge risk. She's taking a huge risk, right? And, and, and she says, I want you to deal kindly with me. I don't want you to miss this. This is really, really important. The word kindly in, in, in scripture, in, in, in Hebrew, uh, is the word hesed. 
hesed. And it's a fantastic, rich, full word in the Bible, hesed. And you see it all throughout scripture. It describes really God's love for us, that he has shown us, humanity, you and I, his loving kindness. It's the word hesed, loving kindness. And the word is defined this way. It means loyal, steadfast, or faithful love, catch this, based on a promise. See, it's not just like, hey, I love you, good luck, I hope it works out, you know, have fun storming the castle. That's an old one. Some of you will, will know what that one's from, and some of you won't, and that's okay, right? Like, God's not like that, right? God's like, I am going to make a promise to you. I'm going to show you my faithful, steadfast love with a promise, right? And the promise was packaged in the gift of Jesus Christ. But this is, this hesed, it really defines for us God's covenantal love, towards us. And it's beautiful. One author said this, and it's kind of long, but just, just uh, follow along with me because it's really, really interesting. He said this, he said, hesed, hesed is not merely an emotion or feeling, but it involves action on behalf of someone who is in need. So it's just like, you know, for you to like be kind to someone, it's more than just being like, oh, I'm going to say something kind. It's, it really goes beyond that. It's kindness in action. It goes beyond kind of the pleasantries, right? Hesed describes a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior toward another person. It surpasses ordinary kindness and friendship. It is the inclination of the heart to show amazing grace to the one who is loved, another human being, right? Hesed runs deeper than social expectations, responsibilities, fluctuating emotions, or what is deserved or what is earned by the recipient. Don't miss the power behind this this morning. Because there is so much emotion for all parties involved, especially, especially for Rahab. I want you to think about something for a moment. Rahab probably lived most of her adult life giving hesed to every man who would come into her house. You think about that? Maybe as small and as brief as those moments were, she lived her life giving this covenant of promise, which is your body, which is obviously God is like, I don't want you to do that, but, but, but that was her life. She, she was accustomed, right, to giving hesed. But she probably went her entire days never receiving it. And it was the very thing that she longed for in life, to receive the one thing that she gave so often to other people, hesed, loyal, faithful, love with a promise. And if she couldn't find it in another man, guess where she would find it? In the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Did that sound appealing to Rahab the harlot? You wanna bet it did. Here's a woman who was probably despised and rejected and only used for brief moments in life, saying, man, the God of heaven is making a promise to me, a hesed, that he would deal kindly with me and show me grace and favor and love. And if God is willing, me, willing to do that for me, I'm willing to take a risk to receive it. So we have the lie, we have the promise, and now we have this beautiful picture of what's called the scarlet cord. And there's such great symbolism and, and such great beauty within this story. It's a story, again, of redemption, of salvation, of the blood of Jesus is, is personified in all of these wonderful, wonderful things that we're about to read this morning. In verse 15, notice it with me. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Not a coincidence that Rahab's house is actually built into the wall with a window that leads to the very bottom of the city Jericho. 
you know, when the nation of Israel is about to come and they're going to march around. If you know the story of Jericho, right? They march around the city seven times and they shout and they, they blow the trumpets, right? And the walls literally fall down and they march in and they take the city. But all the walls fell except for one place. Guess where that was? Rahab's house, right? Rahab's house, the only place left standing. And so she lets them down by this rope and she said to them, go into the hills. Like she knows, like Rahab's a smart woman, right? She knows these two young guys, they're not very good spies. Like here, let me tell you how to save your life, right? Go into the hills, right? Or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days. And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, okay. Like we'll do it, right? And, And then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie The same cord, this red cord, this red rope that you let us down from, tie this in your window. And and you shall gather in your house, your father, your your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And if anyone uh, goes out from your house into the streets during this bloodshed, uh, his blood, her blood will be upon his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is within your house, his blood will be upon our heads. This is their promise. But if you tell this business, verse 20, then we will be guiltless with respect to your oath and and, and that you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, uh, may it be so. And she sends them away and they depart. And the first thing she does, she takes that cord and she ties that red cord within the window of her house. By faith, she trusted in a red cord a red cord that when the nation of Israel would march in and they would look out their windows and see them coming like ants upon the land, marching to Jericho, marching around in the walls, and she's watching this and they're seeing all of this and that red cord is there and they come in and they go right by or they pass over Rahab's house, slaughtering everyone. What does that sound like? It sounds like Egypt, doesn't it? And the Passover, when the death angel came, And the plagues of Egypt, if this is unfamiliar to you, read the book of Exodus. And God had enough of Pharaoh saying, I will not let your people go. And God sends the death angel and says, every firstborn child will die unless you slaughter a perfect lamb. Symbolic of Jesus, right? And you take that blood and you put the blood on the doorpost of your home. And the death angel will see the blood and pass over. Same thing's happening here the scarlet cord, and they would pass over it. Not only does it look back, but it also looks ahead, doesn't it? To one day, uh, the day some 2,000 years ago from this point where Jesus, God came in the flesh, went to a cross and shed his blood so that death would pass over you. And believing in the person of Christ grants you and I eternal life. This is, this is salvation. This is the scarlet cord. This is what God is offering to her. And by faith, by faith, even though she was a liar, even though she was a prostitute, she believed in the promise and by faith believed in that red cord, the blood that would save her, the blood that would save her family. Listen, Rahab's story is our story, right? We once were far from God. We once were sinners, lost, and had no way back to God. All we knew, and maybe all you know today is a lifestyle of sin. Like, you don't, you don't know anything else, and that's okay. That, that, that's the reality of every human being in this world. You're born as a sinner. It's not the bad things that you do. It's the fact that you were born with a sin nature. You can't, you can't do anything to get rid of it, but God has made a promise. And the promise is the promise of Jesus Christ that he came to die for you 
that you might have life. And the beautiful, beautiful option for you and I, the promise that is made to you and I into the world today is if you want life and you want redemption and you want your past to be in the past and you want a future that is hopeful and blessed and from God, you gotta believe in Christ. You gotta believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Our future can be dramatically different just because of what we do with Jesus. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come back up at, at this time. Rahab's story is a wonderful story. And Rahab's story is full of drama. Rahab's story is full of emotion. Rahab's story, uh, it actually has a beautiful, beautiful ending. And I just wanna share a little bit of insight with you from her story. In Joshua chapter number six in verse 25, Rahab and her family are, are able to leave their house. They're able to, 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 to go out, uh, actually outside the camp for a while for, from the nation of Israel. But after the conquest, and after it's all said and done, the writer of Joshua says this, but Rahab the prostitute, there it is again, right? She's like, I can't get past my past, right? Everybody's just keeping it, keeping it in my face. Rahab the prostitute. In her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And notice this, and she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua and sent them to spy out Jericho. Joshua, or Rahab became this, like, this famous gal in town. And the writer of Joshua says, at this time, as you're reading this, like, go knock on Rahab's door. She's on Scarlet Way. Like, like go check it out. Go have a conversation with her. This is the Rahab. This is the Rahab. Jericho, this is the Rahab of Scripture, and she actually makes it into the Hall of Fame. Did you know there's a Hall of Fame in the Bible? Hall of Fame. A bunch of broken people who came to their Jordan and said, I'm going to risk everything to believe in the God of heaven. And they did. And they're people who we would say they're heroes of the faith because they believe in Rahab actually became one of them. It says this in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 31, by faith. Not just I believe something intellectually, but I'm willing to step out and act as if it were so. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. As if that weren't enough, as if that weren't cool enough about the story of Rahab, probably one of the most shocking things about the story of a prostitute, catch this, is that she actually becomes part of the line and lineage of Jesus. What? A prostitute becomes part of like the line of Jesus, Auntie Rahab, Jesus would say. How's it going, honey? How does this happen? Matthew chapter one. You say, like, is the Bible inconsequential? Is like all these like names, are they do they mean anything? Yeah, they mean a lot. They mean a lot. And we read in Matthew chapter one and verse five, it says this in Solomon, the father of Boaz, by who? Say it with me. Rahab, by Rahab, by Rahab, the father of Boaz. Read the story of Boaz. He's this kingsman redeemer. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. But Boaz becomes the father of Obed by Ruth, by Ruth. And, and Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David, the king, one of the greatest kings ever to live in the earth. And David became the father of Solomon, another great king. And from that line comes Jesus, the Messiah, Rahab. Let me, let me ask you, do you think you're too far gone? Do you think you're too much of a sinner? Do you think you got too much red in your ledger? 
like, oh, God couldn't do anything with me. No, no, you're wrong. Look at Rahab. Look at Rahab. God changed everything about her life because she was willing to do two things. And there are two things I'm going to ask you to be willing to do today. Would you stand just for a moment with me? This is a moment of invitation, a moment where we say it's not enough to just hear the word of God. We've got to do it. If you believe and you say you have faith, man, you've got to walk out of these doors and live as if it were so. Rahab did two things. And there are two things that I'm going to ask you to consider this morning. This first thing that Rahab did was this, is she took a risk and she believed, right? Maybe you're here today. You've never believed in Jesus. You've heard about him. You've heard stories. Maybe you know what Jesus has done, that he was this guy who lived and did a lot of good things and said a lot of good things. But let me tell you, he lived, he died, and he rose again. Jesus. We're going to celebrate that in a few weeks. Amen. It's Jesus. Why did he do that? He did that so that you could be forgiven. He did that so that all the guilt and shame and pain and sin in your life that you feel terrible about, he wants to deal with it. He wants to forgive you and give you eternal life. And so I'm going to ask you to do what Rahab did, is to take a risk and believe. You say, how do I do that? You can cry out to God right now. As you know, God can hear you right now in your mind speaking to him. God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my sin separates me from you. And I'm going to take a risk today and believe that you truly came and truly died and truly rose from the grave. And you conquered sin and you conquered death all for me. I'm going to take a risk today and believe. You don't need to talk to me. You don't need to talk to anyone else. You can cry out to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he will hear you, and he will give you life. That is his promise, and that's what, that's what we have done. That's all we've done. We're just recipients of God's grace. Take a risk. Maybe you've done that. Can I speak to you as just a Christian, as a fellow child of God, and ask you to do the second thing that Rahab did, and I'm going to ask you to do it as well, that you would let your mess become your message. We want to hide, don't we? behind this exterior of a religion and we got it all figured out and we dress a certain way and act a certain way and we want everyone to think my life is perfect and it's a lie isn't it it's a lie Rahab let the mess of her life Rahab the prostitute I'm sure she rolled her eyes many times she says yeah I was that's who I was but it's not who I am it's not who I am it's not how you are. But God wants to take this mess so that other people can see. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But God has taken the mess of my life and he's changed me. And if he can do that in your life, and he can do that in anybody's life, that you and I would be willing to walk through this life and say, my life is a mess without Jesus. And I'm willing to share the mess with you, but the message is grace. The message is forgiveness. The message is through Jesus. Let your mess become your message and see what God does for you. What it did through, through Rahab. What God did through Rahab because she was willing to let that be what it is. Father God, we're so grateful. God, we're so unworthy. We don't deserve your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. God, we're, we're broken sinners. 
But God, you've extended grace to us. Grace that we didn't do anything to merit or deserve. And I pray, God, that if there's someone here that has never taken the risk to believe in you, that today would be that day that they believe, they confess you as Lord and Savior, and that their future would be dramatically changed by that one decision to believe in you as Savior. God, I pray for every Christian here. And God, I pray that, that they would allow the mess of their life, they wouldn't hide behind it, but that they would leverage it and use it to show of your wonderful grace and mercy. God, may you use us, may you change this community, may you change this state, may you change our nation because Christians rise up around this place as they were willing to share the mess of our lives that, that people might see the message of Jesus. And we'll give you the glory for it and the praise for it. And we're just grateful and thankful, God. And as we continue to worship, God, we pray that we would leave this place with that spirit of awe and amazement and worship, that you would, you would be the one who is glorified in our lives. We're so very grateful. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you worship one last time with us?